Hey everyone, it's Aaron Fritz and Chris Beck. We've been working on something new and exciting for our colleagues and trainees. Quick story, last year I had read somewhere that the volume of medical information doubles every 73 days. 73 days. It hit me that it's really difficult to keep up and it got me thinking about Backtable. We are getting good practical knowledge from our podcast, but there's room for improvement in them as an educational resource. We felt like we owed it to you, our audience, to build on the podcast to address this need. And that's what we're doing with Backtable Plus. Exactly, Aaron. Backtable Plus is for doctors who are seeking to elevate their practice and sharpen their skills by learning from their peers. We've created focused, curated courses on interventional and endovascular procedures vetted by Backtable's network of practicing experts. And we're really proud to be able to share that with you all. It's live now at backtable.com. Tap the link and just click on courses at the top. Yeah. In addition to getting this information in a concise course format, you get CME for it. I figured we're educating ourselves constantly online. It sure would be nice to get credit for it. Partnering with CME if I made this happen. There are three years worth of CME credits already live in the platform today. These courses are live right now. Find the link or type in backtable.com and click the tab that says courses. And that's it. We also made a mobile app and you can grab that from either Apple or Android's app store as well. Couple more things. From now until SIR in late March, users will get 50% off of the annual subscription, a great way to use your education funds. And the first 25 physicians to sign up, you guessed it, a signature limited edition Backtable Plus hoodie. Only a few of these, so get them while you can. Can't wait to see you there. Just go to backtable.com and click on courses at the top. This week on the Backtable Podcast. So we do a lot of deep fitness naturalization for these patients. So we have patients who've had diabetes for so many years. They have the combination of micro and macrovascular disease. They have medial artery calcinosis. These patients just have an incredibly high risk of limb loss and amputation. And unfortunately, the standard way of treating them, whether surgically or with endovascular means, just cannot address such diffuse disease of these small vessels. So then deep venous arterialization becomes an option for them where we can connect one artery to one vein, then deliver oxygen to blood to the foot, trying to help them save the, the limbs. So we participated in the PROMISE 2 clinical trial, which was released in New England Journal of Medicine and 66% uh, amputation-free survival. So we're hoping we get to do more and more of that, trying to help these patients. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. First, a brief word from our sponsors. Want to save time when you order medical devices for your lab? Restock Boston Scientific products seamlessly with Lab Agent an easy, time-saving device. This free solution allows any user to quickly scan and reorder a Boston Scientific product with a handheld device. Then it arrives with free two-day shipping. Users have saved up to five hours a week. Visit bostonscientific.com forward slash lab agent to learn more about lab agent today. That's lab agent from Boston Scientific. Physicians worldwide rely on peripheral catheters by Reflow Medical, and now Reflow is introducing Cora catheters, a unique line of coronary catheters that are setting a new standard for complex PCI. The CoraFlex, CoraForce, and the CoraCross are all engineered with groundbreaking technology, and each device offers unmatched bilateral torque with the lowest overall profile available. For more information, visit www.reflowmedical.com. Now, back to the show.
Today, I'm joined by Dr. Zola Ndandu in Kenner, Louisiana, to talk about building a CLI team. Zola, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me today. This is excellent. So where, where are you working? Uh, so I work at uh, Ochsner Medical Center and one of the few campuses we have in Louisiana, particularly at the one that uh, in Kenner close to, uh, to the airport. Right on. Is, uh, is it primarily you know, hospital setting or outpatient? Or? It's uh, primarily a, a hospital setting. We have a collaboration with our big system as well. So we do have residents and fellows that work with us as well. Nice. Okay, cool. And so, you know, for our listeners, Zola is an interventional cardiologist. Can you tell us a little bit about your practice? Yes, as you said, I'm an interventional cardiologist. My practice, I'll say probably between 60 to 65% is peripheral, mostly uh, critical ischemia. And then I also still do some general cardiology and interventional cardiology as well. But the focus really is uh, with uh, PAD and venous disease. Yeah, most of us who follow you on Twitter have seen, you know, a lot of the stuff you're doing and it's a great opportunity for the residents and fellows. How long have you been there? So I've been in uh, within the ultra system altogether for 22 years. That includes uh, my eight years of training. I did internal medicine, general cardiology, and interventional cardiology here, including an extra year for uh, peripheral training. And then uh, altogether, after my training, I've been here the whole time working, except for two years that was spent uh, in Phoenix, uh, Arizona. So altogether, about 22 years. So that's cool. You did a full year dedicated to, to peripheral work. That's awesome. That's correct. So I actually, I did my surgery internship at Austria, so I, I knew the place fairly well. What I'm curious about is uh, when you were in training, you know, were you guys seeing the volume of, you know, not only just, you know, routine peripheral work, but critical limb ischemia that you're seeing now? Not as much. Uh, we did a lot of work with uh, really extensive with peripheral arterial disease that included carotids, subclavians, iliac disease, femoral popliteal as well. We did some infrapapatial and inframalleolar disease, but not as much. I think the reason why I'm doing a lot of it now is just because it's become my niche and my focus, but uh, not as much. So those are things that I had to seek also outside you know, after my training, traveling, going to conferences, and then connecting with people uh, in the field. Okay. So what made you decide to grow this part of your practice and, and ultimately develop a dedicated CLI team? Yeah, so I remember going to uh, a conference in in, uh, in Las Vegas, Viva, one of the conferences there. And uh, I remember sitting in an audience and I, I was watching uh, a live case that was being performed by Andre Schmitz uh, in Leipzig, Germany. I was just mesmerized by the work that was being done. At that time, I was already doing some peripheral work, but I just... I saw the dedication that was given to addressing infrapapatil and inframalleolar disease. And I think that was really the trigger for me. And then when I came back here at, uh, at Auctioner at Kenner, uh, we have a wound care center. And I saw these patients and I wanted to make sure I could be of help. And so that's how the whole thing uh, came together after several years. So once you decided to kick this off, where, where do you even start, you know, building a team from scratch? Yeah, it's definitely challenging. So I, I think what worked uh, for us is uh, I wanted to make sure that I could be that champion, that I could show the enthusiasm. So I started basically everything on my own in a sense. So I would take care of those patients. I followed them. I had an Excel spreadsheet where I made sure they had the follow-up visits. I was doing everything on my own. I will call the podiatrist or the surgeon that was doing the wound care, just trying to find a way to keep up with these folks. But then as time went on, uh, we had a podiatrist that could see the work that was being done. And then we had uh, a couple of infectious disease doctors that we worked very closely with. We made sure all of our patients went to them. And before we knew it, we had this group of physicians that were taking care of these patients. And all of us, at some point in time, said, look, we can do actually a better job 
if we just kind of make it a point to make sure we're holding hands all the time so we can take out these patients. And that's how the whole program grew. And then other partners joined because it's not possible to do this by yourself. And so having that team has really made a big difference. And now I see patients in wound care uh, every other week. And um, my wound care team, home health nurses, I mean, they call me on my cell phone. We're constantly communicating. That's awesome. Uh, to make sure we get to take care of these uh, complex patients. Tell me a little bit about your working relationship with the other doctors involved, you know, podiatry, surgery. I would imagine, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that this was a really valuable addition to them because, I mean, these are a really challenging subset of PAD patients, right? Especially for them. That's correct. So they have a lot of issues, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of comorbidities. So um, I think when people saw the commitment on my part, I think it helped everybody to get involved because I'm sure other people probably thought about just doing this before, but perhaps they found themselves doing it by themselves, which can become extremely challenging. But when you know that the other players involved in the sandbox, then it's also become easier, right? Because you can bring you the highest level of expertise, but you know if there are other things that you cannot do, that there's somebody else that will take care of that for overall good outcomes. Right on. So how do the, you know, how are you guys identifying most of these patients? I mean, you know, just from Twitter alone, I mean, it seems like you're pretty busy with this. You've got a lot of these patients that you've been treating. How do they get to you? Uh, so they come to us from uh, multiple uh, sources. Some of them will come to us from uh, podiatrists. Some of them will come to us from the uh, hospitalists. Um, and some of them will come from endocrinologists. And some people, by word of mouth, have heard about the work that we do will come to us for second opinion. Some will come to us from infectious disease physicians as well. And so with all the teaching that we do in the outreach, podiatrists, podiatrists, residents, internal medicine, family practice residents, uh, cardiology fellows have also become our extension. So wherever they are, when they meet people who are in trouble, they reach out to us. So we get referrals uh, from um, literally every corner to come and see us yeah. and we take care of them. Tell me how else the the team has evolved. You know, I mean, it, it started out with you on a laptop with an Excel spreadsheet. How's it gone from there to where you are today? Yeah. So where we are today, we have a we have a nurse coordinator, two of them. One who's housed in wound care, and the other is housed in our cardiology clinic. And is that strictly for CLI stuff, or is it for all PAD? So uh, the one that's in our clinic is for all PAD. And then the one that's in wound care, it's for all of our wound patients. So that's patients with PAD, but also patients with venous ulcers. And those nurses are in constant communication, the two of them, and also with us, the physicians, and with the patients and their families. And so we make sure that they have all the follow-ups. We make sure we plug them in in our smoking cessation for those that are smoking. We follow them closely. We make sure they see the endocrinologists. Uh, one of our endocrinologists has an NIH-funded grant to take care of... Uh, diabetic patients with CLTI. And so those nurses really have made a big difference. One of the challenges we used to face at times, Mike, was a patient will come to the hospital, we'll work on them. The patient will get discharged to a rehab facility or a skillness facility. And sometimes from then on, they would get lost to discharge. So these nurses, they talk with those patients weekly, they talk with the families, and soon after they get discharged, they come and see us. So sometimes even while they're there, we can make an exception where we can bring him and see him in office. So it, it's really has helped us tremendously because otherwise, um, early on we could, but we didn't have as many patients. But now that the practice has grown, it would be very difficult to do on our own. I bet. And so 
for most of these patients, are they getting seen by the other doctors on your team as well? Or, you know, they come for you, come to you, have a procedure and then follow up with everyone. How does that work? I mean, this is a, these are challenging patients who have lots of issues. Yes, absolutely. So that's a phenomenal question. Uh, there's a, some research actually I've just presented uh, recently at the New Carvasco Horizon. And I mentioned on the average, after a patient has a, a vascular procedure for CLTI, in the coming months, those patients have up to average of 16.3 visits. So it's it's not easy for the patients, for the families. You can imagine the co-pays and all those things. So among the things that we've done, one of them is I'm in wound care every other Tuesday. So when a patient comes to wound care, I'll see them as a cardiovascular vascular specialist. The podiatrist sees them and then also the wound care nurse. And all of us are in the room together. So we address the blood pressure, address the medication, I make sure from a vascular standpoint things are okay. The podiatrist will address the wound. And if we need to come up with follow-ups, home health orders, ultrasounds, ABS, all those kind of things, the nurse, everything in writing. As the patient's leaving the room, everything is ordered. When they go home, everything is all set. And when they come back two weeks later, I'm seeing them as well. Uh, so doing that has helped tremendously because that's easily three visits there that we've been able to eliminate at one. 16, that's crazy. And and also not surprising, you know? I mean, these are really complex patients and they're really complex treatments. Uh, you know, this is fantastic for your, your residents and fellows. I mean, you know, you did a whole year in extra PAD training. You could spend a whole year just doing infrapophageal work, not to mention, you said, in, inframalleolar work. And so that's awesome for them. Has this become a really large part of your practice, CLTI? Yes, you know, on the average when I'm in clinic, probably if I, if I have, you know, 20, 22 patients, probably half of them are coming for these reasons. Some of them are coming, you know, as new patients needing something done. Some are coming uh, for the follow-ups. And so it's become a huge part of our practice. But, you know, it's something I really enjoy, so it's, uh, it makes it easier that way. Uh, so the patients that are coming in to see you for the first time, like what, what imaging do they usually come in with? I mean, is it standardized or is it different for every patient? There's a component, I'll say it's standardized, but, you know, I think our patient, even though there are a lot of them, even though they have a lot of similarities, but they're also unique in their own way. So we're trying to make sure if they're going to come for the first time with that, we want to make sure they have studies prior to. So if they're coming for a wound that looks arterial, we're going to have an ankle breaker index, a toe breaker indices. Some, some of our patients have, you know, falsely abnormal ABIs. We have an ultrasound, we have labs, and then they'll come in. And then from there, we'll... we'll evaluate them, and we'll determine what do they need in collaboration with podiatrists and wound care team. For patients that are coming to us for the first time, but they're coming for a second opinion, most of the folks have some studies with them. They've had ABIs, TBIs, labs, probably had an angiogram, or probably had an unsuccessful procedure, or they had a procedure, somebody said they need an amputation. So they usually have all that information. We're trying to get that beforehand. I like to usually review those studies before they arrive, so that way when I'm meeting them, I can at least join that visit, tell them what can we do to help them. So, and then take it from there. Do you order your own studies on these patients? Do you ever get like CT angiograms or do you just kind of wait and evaluate it with an AGL? Sometimes we do CT angiogram. Uh, I find it to be a bit challenging for infrapapatilla, inframalleolar vessels. I think it works very well for the large vessels. And then when they counsel, uh, and I'm sure you deal with this all the time because when we order them, you have to read them for us. And, oh. and, uh, if the, and they're all calcified. Exactly. I can't. Once you get below the knee, I have a really hard time determining if an artery is even patent or not. Even when they get the delays, you know, I can't imagine for the 
inframalleolar stuff. I think it's uh, very, very difficult uh, with yeah. CT. So we end up uh, doing intracranial with those folks, and that way we can have very good information and be able to treat them. Because, you know, in this space, the foot is the end organ. And not uncommonly, sometimes we don't do a very good job of doing a very good angiogram of the inframalleolar uh, vessels. And so without that, unfortunately, we cannot go to deliver a good therapy. So having a good diagnostic angiogram becomes extremely important yeah. in, in the management of these uh, patients. No, that's a really good point about, you know, failing to get a good look at the arteries below the ankle. I started with CTA when I was in training. Nobody was treating these, you know, the stuff that you're doing now. And so... So I, I didn't even pay attention to, you know, any of the arteries below the ankle. And, and still, that's like my template when I read one of these. And, you know, is it patent to the ankle? Is it patent to the foot? Uh, no one's talking about the toes on those studies. Well, let's talk just for a minute about how you're treating them because, you know, I know you guys are doing some pretty advanced work. And, you know, from a technical standpoint, it, it seems like this has really evolved in the last like five, 10 years, right? So, well, tell us. First of all, you know, what has changed in the treatment of CLTI really in the last, I don't know, decade? I think uh, two things. So from a medical standpoint, I think what's changed is we have more medications for our patients and we have more information about what works, what doesn't work. And then also we know that uh, we can do it a much better job to make sure we have patients on guideline directed medical therapy for PAD. We still have a lot of patients who are not on intense therapy with LDLS and 70 on aspirin on ACE and ARBs, people that can tolerate statin, we don't have them on, uh, you know, PSK9 and things like that. So having that data really is helpful. We know from the two other trials from Voyager and Compass, the patients will benefit from being on, on Zoralto. So these are all things, now that we have that ammunition, it becomes extremely important to make sure that all of our patients are treated as such because we know they do well uh, with those medications. And then from a revascularization standpoint, the surgery is definitely a good option. And for those patients that cannot have surgery endovascular or phenomenal aspirin, uh, a lot of these patients have issues that could make it difficult to have surgery, whether because of multiple comorbidities and or not having good uh, veins. And so, but from an endovascular standpoint, there have been tremendous advances uh, in terms of, uh, for instance, things like a radio torpedo. These are things that we didn't do years ago. You know, we've got so efficient and effective at doing uh, cases with pedal access. And then we have third and fourth generation uh, stents that we did not have before. We have uh, enteroproliferative therapy with stents and drug-coated balloons. Now we are working on, you know, bioabsorbable infrapropatil stents. I mean, so there have been tremendous advance uh, in the field. But what we need, we need good data because uh, we can have all the toys, but if we don't have good data, it makes it very difficult to, to treat these patients. So uh, we have some trials, but not as many as, because we are spoiled as cardiologists. Uh, if you look at the acutamide data set for antiplatelet therapy, we have thousands and thousands of patients, and, and that's not the case with CLTI. So we're getting there. I think we're making good progress, uh, but I think working together becomes extremely important. What's on the horizon for CLTI or, or, you know, aside from data, what do we need to see, you know, coming on the horizon that's going to that's gonna help these patients and help you do your job? Yeah. So a couple of things. I think uh, one of them is that we still need more ammunition to address uh, infrapapatial and infamalleolar disease. Uh, these are usually long chronic total occlusions, heavily calcified. How do we address them? 
balloon angioplasty works, but unfortunately it's not good enough. We have recoil, we have dissections. How do we deal with that? The data has not been so good thus far with uh, with uh, drug-coated balloons, but I think there were a lot of limitations with the studies. You know, people were not using IVIS and things like that, so we're probably undersizing these balloons. That's why we didn't have good results. And so hopefully, as we continue to get better, we can find more ways of treating infrapapatillin inframalleolar disease. Like I mentioned earlier, a lot of trials with bioabsorbable stent. The result was not as good in the corners, but they've been favorable thus far in the peripheral uh, world. So hopefully we get to do that. There's some other technology in development where instead of deploying a stent, we have temporary stents where you put a stent that has spikes. It can temporarily help to minimize dissection. Some of those uh, stents also have drug medication that can be released into the endothelial, and then you remove it. And the idea behind that is less restenosis, less dissection, less recoil, keep these vessels open. Uh, so it's a stent that's mounted uh, and it has a sheath and the sheath covers it. So when you unsheath it, you then inflate the balloon, the spikes will go into the vessel. Uh, you wait three minutes, you deflate the balloon, and then you then push that cover to sheath it again to remove it. So it is the clinical trial that we're participating in right now. That's exciting. Very much so. I look forward to reading about that. What else do you want to talk about that I haven't covered on CLTI, building a team, or really anything else you're doing right now that you're excited about? Sure. The other thing, too, that uh, we haven't involved uh, with is uh, the treatment of uh, patients that we, quote-unquote, call no-option CLTI patient. My hope is we're no longer going to use that nomenclature. So we do a lot of deep venous naturalization for these patients. So we have patients who've had diabetes for so many years. They have the combination of micro and macrovascular disease. They have medial artery calcinosis. These patients just have an incredibly high risk of limb loss and amputation. And unfortunately, the standard way of treating them, whether surgically or with endovascular means, just cannot address such diffuse disease of these small vessels. So then deep venous, venous actualization becomes an option for them where we can connect one artery to one vein, then deliver oxygen to blood to the foot, trying to help them uh, save the, the limbs. So we participated in the Promise 2 clinical trial, which was released in New England Journal of Medicine and 66% uh, amputation-free survival. So we're hoping we get to do more and more of that, trying to help these patients. Hey, just for a second, a lot of our listeners are trainees. Could you explain how and why that works, deep vein arterialization? It's a kind of a hot topic right now. Uh, so deep vein really is a, is a last resort. And the idea behind that is when you connect an artery to a vein, the theory is this particular vein is going to deliver oxygen blood to the foot, and do the reverse of what it's supposed to do, and then deliver oxygen blood to the capillaries, and then return back to the heart. Now, uh, there's a component that's also very interesting. When we see patients with uh, no option, they have low perfusion, whether you do a tool breaker index or tissue oximetry, what we notice is over a period of time, those numbers improve. And even after the conduit is occluded, they maintain the tissue perfusion above the healing threshold. So we think there's a component of angiogenesis that occurs that allows them to recruit more capillaries and collaterals to maintain that uh, perfusion above the healing threshold. So that's how we think it works. But we're still learning. I mean, we still have a long way to go. Right, it's brand new. Absolutely. Very exciting. It seems like somebody probably discovered it on accident. You know, but you know, Mike, what's interesting about DVA 
is that the the very first publication that we have in the literature was published in 1912. Yeah, it's old. It's very old. Somebody was telling me about this. That's right. So it's old, but we just haven't really had a, a lot of interest in developing it. But I think now with diabetes, chronic kidney disease, advanced PAD, I think that's where we start thinking about it more, trying to find ways to help these folks. And so hopefully we're going to get a way, find a way to fine tune it and be able to make it a standard treatment. Certainly, you know, a lot of these these no options, quote unquote, no option patients are living a lot longer than they were 30 years ago. And, you know, we're seeing a lot more of these patients who are 30 years ago may not have been alive. Can we talk just for a minute about how you do it? Sure, absolutely. So the way to do it, uh, the most important thing is really the planning. I think uh, if you're just going to wake up in the morning, go do a case like this, it might not go as well. The pre-planning is extremely important. So first of all, you want a very, very good diagnostic angiogram. You want to make sure if there's any inflow disease that you address that beforehand. So you're not overwhelmed trying to do everything all at once. So we take care of that. Make sure iliac, SFA, pop, all those things are okay. And then if there's going to be an artery, most of the, the majority of the time in trials and even we do off the shelf, we use predominantly the posterior tibial because the posterior tibial vein and a lot of plantar vein are quite large and they can deliver a large amount of blood. So if the patient has an AT and a perineal, you want to definitely maintain those because the combination of having arterial and the deep uh, venous blood, really it's helpful. And then, uh, then the idea behind that is we're going to connect that to a vein. So the posterior tibial artery has two veins next to it. Years ago, when we started doing this, we used to get access in the vein right around the ankle. So we use ultrasound, we get into the vein, we go up, and somewhere mid uh, distal PT or proximal PT, we then make a connection. But when we, when we reverse the access, now you have your wire going downstream. What we noticed was traveling from the ankle and navigating to that plantar loop was extremely difficult because of those valves. And so the one thing that helped us over time was to get access in the plantar vein at the bottom of the foot to ultrasound guidance. That way you're traveling in the same direction with the valves as made it much, much easier for us. And then regarding crossing, the multiple ways of crossing, for us that participated in the PROMISE-2 trial, there's a dedicated catheter that has a basket that you put in the venous access, and then a device that's uh, like a re-entry device that punctures into that basket. You advance the O14 wire, you pull the wire to externalize. That's one way. But the lymph flow device is not commercially available thus far. And so We've used uh, the Pioneer catheter, ultrasound guidance you can see from artery to vein, and then puncture. Or we've also done it from vein to artery, depending on the circumstances. We've also used the Outback balloon catheter, where you have a balloon inflated into the vein, and then you bring your Outback, you turn it so you can target that balloon and puncture. And once you puncture that balloon, then you advance a wire you know you are in the vein. Uh, there's also a device called Bentley catheter. It's also a re-entry device that we've used. And uh, the very last one that we, we use probably most commonly of all of them is a gun side technique. That's what we learned from you. You guys use that procedure for your tips procedures. And so we do that as well. You put a snare in the vein, a snare in the artery, you line them up, you puncture with a 21 gauge needle with advanced O14 wire, and then we move the needle, pull them both sides to establish connection between the artery and the vein. Man, that's awesome. So, Solo, once you've made the connection, how do you keep it open? Great. So, 
the first time we did this, I was fearful that after making that connection, and if I put a, if I use a balloon to open up the fissure, the patient will start bleeding. Interestingly, they never bleed because blood goes to the place of uh, least resistance. And so it just goes directly into the vein. They never bleed in the soft tissue. So we use a balloon, we open up that fistula, and the other challenge that we have to deal with is to make sure that the valves and the plantar surface are destroyed so that way blood can go in the opposite direction of what it's supposed to be doing. And so How do you use... tell if you got them? How do you tell if you destroyed the valves? Oh, so we use, uh, we use cutting balloons or scoring balloon. And then what we do is we have a catheter by the ankle and we inject to make sure that we have forward flow going to the forefoot. And that's when we know that uh, we got the valves. And we use IVIS for all these cases, which also helps us to look at those after to make sure the lumens are open, that we can give blood to the forefoot. Yeah, I imagine uh, those are kind of tough to interpret. Um, I mean, this is all, you know, none of this is textbook stuff. And that's why I said with that, we're still learning. And then the last part will be putting a cover stent to go from artery into vein all the way down to the ankle. And it closes the fistula so you don't have steel. It also closes all the branches so you don't have any steel all the way down to the ankle and uh, blood goes to the foot. How do you follow it up after that? Like, how do you assess the efficacy? I mean, aside from a patient, you know, having flow to the foot, I mean, how do you really, how do you follow it up? Very good. So there are a couple of things that we do. Foremost, we make sure physically they're okay. We'll follow them very closely. We do ultrasound. And with that, there are a couple of things that we follow. We want to make sure that the conduit is patent. We check velocities. But what's really important is the flow volume, meaning you can have an open conduit, but if your slow volume is higher than 500 uh, cc per minute, then it's too much blood being stolen out of that, so people don't get much benefit out of that either. And then if your slow also starts dropping less than 200, we start worrying about is there a stenotic lesion somewhere, other inflow or outflow. So a very low threshold to take those patients back to the cath lab to re-intervene if we need to. So there's that. And then the other thing that we also use is a tissue axiometry where we measure the healing threshold as we follow them. And so not uncommonly, people have single digits, tissue perfusion less than 10, and we can follow them as they're rising through. On the average, from the time that we do a DVA, we want to wait at least four, maybe five weeks before we do any kind of surgery, unless if we need to go do something for infection control and things like that. But if we can wait, the longer we can wait, the better. Man, that is really exciting stuff. Man, I think that covers most of what I had. Is there anything else that you want to go over that I didn't cover? So in summary, a couple of things I want to bring up. I think what's important here when you're building a CLI team is to make sure that you have multiple folks who have the same mindset, the same passion, to take care of these complex group of patients. There's no specialty that's uh, superior to another uh, when it comes to the space just because of the complexity of these patients. So having vascular surgery, interventional radiology, interventional cardiology from a vascular standpoint, I think is extremely important to have vascular medicine to make sure these folks are on the guideline-directed medical therapy for peripheral arterial disease becomes extremely important. And then the collaboration from our gatekeepers, primary care doctors, our emergency room doctors, urgent care physicians, endocrinologists, nephrologists, social workers, case managers, physical therapists, and most importantly, let's not forget the family members that have to help these patients to bring them for their appointments, for their follow-ups, to make sure they're taking the medications. 
to make the runs to the pharmacy or to the grocery store to make sure they have all the nutritional supplements that they need. Another important aspect in terms of providing comprehensive care for these patients is certain regions of the country have access to a lot of vascular specialists, but there are also other areas, especially rural areas, even some metropolitan areas where you just don't have enough vascular specialists. So it becomes important for those of us who are in this field to make sure we collaborate with the local folks to make our presence known to take care of these patients. And also as a society, uh, I think we need to incentivize our young trainees to also seek job opportunities in these rural areas where patients uh, need access and help to have good outcomes. And then there's another crisis within a crisis, which is the management of CLTI or the outcomes of CLTI in poor underserved area in people of color. Uh, we know when you look at uh, Medicare, beneficiaries of color, so African-Americans, Native Americans, and Latin Americans uh, folks have a two to three times higher amputation rate compared to their white counterparts. So I think it becomes extremely important for all of us involved in the management of these patients to address these issues. Now we can do it individually, but I don't think it's going to be enough. So I think looking at it from uh, regional is important, statewide is important, but also nationally uh, with all the stakeholders involved to make sure that we take care of these patients. Well, Zola, it's really impressive what you've built and it's great. You know, we have a challenging patient population in South Louisiana. Yes. Uh, and hats off to you and your team. And uh, it's just about time for you to open up an office in Baton Rouge. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, we do, we're not that far, so we'll come visit you or come visit us. Uh, our door is always open, lights is on, so please come see us anytime. I will, man. I'll look you up next time I'm there. But thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, I learned a lot, and thanks to our listeners. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don. Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Willie Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. Hey everyone, it's Aaron Fritz and Chris Beck. We've been working on something new and exciting for our colleagues and trainees. Quick story, last year I had read somewhere that the volume of medical information doubles every 73 days. 73 days. It hit me that it's really difficult to keep up and it got me thinking about Backtable. We are getting good, practical knowledge from our podcast, but there's room for improvement in them as an educational resource. We felt like we owed it to you, our audience, to build on the podcast to address this need, and that's what we're doing with Backtable Plus. Exactly, Aaron. Backtable Plus is for doctors who are seeking to elevate their practice and sharpen their skills by learning from their peers. We've created focused, curated courses on interventional and endovascular procedures vetted by Backtable's network of practicing experts 
And we're really proud to be able to share that with you all. It's live now at backtable.com. Tap the link and just click on courses at the top. Yeah, in addition to getting this information in a concise course format, you get CME for it. I figured we're educating ourselves constantly online. It sure would be nice to get credit for it. Partnering with CME if I made this happen. There are three years worth of CME credits already live in the platform today. These courses are live right now. Find the link or type in backtable.com and click the tab that says courses. And that's it. We also made a mobile app and you can grab that from either Apple or Android's app store as well. Couple more things. From now until SIR in late March, users will get 50% off of the annual subscription, a great way to use your education funds. And the first 25 physicians to sign up, you guessed it, a signature limited edition Back to O Plus hoodie. Only a few of these, so get them while you can. Can't wait to see you there. Just go to backtable.com and click on courses at the top.